Well, it's good to see you guys. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. A number of years ago, I was asked to do a breakout session for a, a conference that was a, a bit different than this one. It was one of those conferences that basically promised you, you know, how you could take your, your church from three to 30,000 in four weeks and, you know, all of that stuff. And um, somehow I got roped into this thing. And so the breakout session that uh, I opted to do is on church discipline. <laughs> and uh, so they gave me two blocks of time to do the breakout session. And, and I think in the first one, I may have had three, I think possibly two people in the session. And in the second one, uh, nobody showed up except they sent one of the representatives of the conference, so I wouldn't you know, be totally depressed. And, uh, but I actually chose that to make a point to the leaders. And, and that was, you're, you're, you're playing with stuff that will not last for the long haul. And the appetite that you have created reveals you got people that don't want to invest in that which is going to actually serve the church and sustain the church. Because all of this other stuff that you have, it, it cannot hold the weight of a gospel church ministry over the long haul. Um, so anyway, the fact that there's more than two people in here this morning, we're already, uh, <laughs> we're already doing well. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I were in... Uh, Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, we have a daughter who's out in Arizona, and we thought, hey, let's. She wanted us to come out so you know we could do some stuff around the Grand Canyon. And uh, so we're we're sitting at breakfast in a hotel and um, trying to figure out what we're going to be doing that morning. And there's a gal next to us who says, um, hey, have you have you have you gone to the particular cave and there's this cave out there that is formed by a lava tube and uh, apparently it goes you know a mile and a half underground and so she convinced us that we ought to do that and I never um, joined the Boy Scouts so I hadn't really thought this through well and my daughter was actually organizing this whole trip so we find this place in the middle of this forest, and sure enough, there's this hole in the ground, and we start going down in this, and um, I, I pull out my phone because I can't see, and I flip on the light so we can, and we're supposed to go a mile and a half into this cave, and I got a light on my phone, and about you know, a little ways into this, and I'm watching the battery life, <laughs> you know, going like this, and I'm starting to do the math, and I realize this, this, is, this is not just a bad story. This, this is bad. This is really bad. And uh, fortunately, there was, uh, you know, some other groups of people that were going through, and it, you know, makes you feel even worse. They've got their headlamps on, flashlights, and it's, and it's like this whole beacon just goes on by, and you know, I'm with this little light. And this one guy had pity and uh, he reached into his backpack and he said, hey, would these be helpful? And he pulled out a couple little flashlights, gave one to me, one to my daughter. And I was just like, oh, thank you. 
Thank you so much. So I hope that this session, I might be able to be that guy who kind of reaches into the backpack and says, here, here's a flashlight. You know, this might be helpful for you as you're navigating some things. I want to dovetail something that uh, uh, Dr. Dorn just, just said and um, tie that into to this. He said, we need people uh, to help us see sin correctly and feel it properly. And um, I think that the Lord in his kindness has often put those kinds of people into our lives right in our homes. And oftentimes I know that the Lord has used uh, my wife and my children uh, to be just a real sanctifying influence in my life. And so if I can kind of point you in that direction and help you with some of those things, then I think our time will be fruitful. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the flashlight that you have given us through your word and spirit and church to to make it to the end of this dark cave of life and to know that um, it actually bursts forth into glory one day. And so we ask that um, it might help us that this will be fruitful uh, for our own faithfulness and joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little of that pertains to me as it relates to this talk. I grew up in the ministry. My father was an associate pastor way back in the day in which they called his position a minister of music. I don't know, some of you my age, you may remember those days. I met my wife in college. We were married 38 years ago tomorrow um, after I was a youth pastor. We served in that capacity for four years. Then we moved to Detroit when our firstborn was two weeks old so I could serve on the staff of a church not too far from here. It was a tumultuous season. After being there for about two and a half years, I was asked to be the senior pastor of the church where I currently serve. There we were blessed with with two girls. So our son, uh, Bobby, served in Ghana for a season with his wife and kids. He is now in Kentucky. Uh, He serves as a senior pastor. He and his wife have four children, a fifth on the way. Our daughter, Rebecca, uh, was a nurse for a while at St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. She um, was in the bone marrow transplant unit there. Uh, The Lord kindly gave her a husband. Uh, Her husband is the son of a pastor. And so it's really a sweet gift to each of them because my daughter's concern was that nobody would really ever understand her life. And you were in the ministry And if you have children, you understand that. And so when the Lord gave her a husband who grew up in the ministry, it's like, boy, they they, they really understood each other well. And uh, they recently moved back here into the Detroit area, and they are um, living with his parents right now. Um, He's a physical therapist, just just opened a clinic. And um, so we're grateful that They're back in town. They have two little boys. 
Our youngest, her daughter that I was just referencing earlier, um, she's in the United States Army. She's in military intelligence. Um, If she told me what she did, she'd have to kill me, and she could. (laughs) Several different ways. So I, I don't mess with her. But we're grateful at God's... Uh, saving grace in the lives of our children and sustaining grace in them. Um, We have six grandkids, a seventh on the way, just very overwhelmed that our kids are serious about the gospel, very intentional about raising their kids in a manner that's consistent with us. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a text that you are able to, Probably most of you just a quote. Uh, always bears repeating, though. First Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. I take that to be as the category heading. I think that's often the way Paul does some of these kinds of lists. He gives us the title, and then he begins to unpack what does it mean in this case to be above reproach. And he talks about the home, doesn't he? The husband of one wife. And then these other things, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, back to the home again must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. Similar pattern is then repeated in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5-9. through 9. Bobby Jameson writes, the day you start serving as a pastor is the day everyone starts watching you. I finished preaching a sermon. I was standing at the back and people were going by talking to me. An elderly lady came by. This is back, way back in the days when we wore ties. Remember that? And uh, she grabbed my tie and she she was short. She pulled me down. And uh, here, I was under the illusion that she'd been listening to the sermon, you know, the whole, whole morning. And she pulled me down, you know. So I bend down and she goes, I just wanted to see what you'd done with your hair. <laughs> and you just realize, people are watching you all the time. Not always in ways in which you would imagine. And I would add to that, that not only are people watching you, but they're watching your kids. And your kids didn't sign up for it. It's sort of like Hannah, 1 Samuel 1, who decided Samuel is going to serve the Lord all the days of his life. That's what she decides. She didn't ask him about it. She just determined that's what he's going to do. So, Paul says, if a man desires the office of an overseer, you you aspire um, or aspire to being in the ministry, and your 
kids, your wife, your family is part of your qualification for it. Now, if you're looking at your notes, logically, I should begin with point number two. I should begin with marriage and then talk about children because that's the order in which it goes. However, it seems to me there's just a lot more stuff on marriage in ministry than there is on parenting in ministry. And so, not knowing exactly how long this will go, I thought, I'm going to front load this with the parenting part, and if I run out of time, there's enough stuff out there on the marriage part that I think you know, you'll be, you know, well served by that, even though I do want to get to that as well. So I am running these in reverse order. It's out, it's, it's not logical, but hopefully it'll be, be practical. So first thing I do want to talk to you about is parenting in ministry. The 25 years ago, I went on a, a two week trip to India and then to Korea in order to preach in a Bible college and teach in some churches and so forth. And this is pre-9-11, so security wasn't what it is today. And my wife and children were able to accompany me to the gate. And as I left my wife, Kathy, with our three little kids, and it was in January in Michigan, uh, and it was in the midst of, you know, some, some, some brutal weather, I remember hearing my youngest daughter realizing that I was leaving. She's, she's in the gate, and it's, it's hard even to say this without breaking up, but she, she screamed, No! And I, and I heard that echoing in the jetway all the way onto the plane. And I sat down in the plane, and I looked back at the at the gate and I saw my kids and I thought you know she wasn't the only one crying that day and as I looked trying to get one last glimpse of them I thought what, what am I doing what am I doing to my family what, what, was this trip really worth it was I right to do this could, could someone else not have gone and taught this course and preached these messages? And I, brothers, I, I, I think it's, it's the kind of question you ask yourself as well. You know of what I'm speaking, because serving the church, it's not merely a job. It is an all-consuming responsibility that can threaten a family. I'm assuming that while you are here physically this morning. You are tempted to be 10 other places mentally. Um, Yesterday, um, I was in a counseling session. I'm not sure it went real well. Um, I had a meeting late last night that, you know, it's one of those situations that it could go south. And it could be uh, another grief. Um, I had a guy that sent a text from the ICU of the hospital. He said, tell Bob I said goodbye. And he died at 5.30. And that's 
your life. That's, that's all of those things. You are, you are in the midst of this right now. You know those hospital trips and the frantic calls from a broken-hearted spouse um, whose spouse never came home. And you never get caught up on your to-do list. And you're never bored stiff hoping that some, ki- some crisis will just, please, break out so that, you know, it'll can, you know, mess up the monotony. I mean, for, for most of us, when we get home, our bodies may be home, but our full attention is really slow to arrive because there's always more visits to schedule, more people to counsel, more calls to take, more meetings to attend, more functions to pray at, more books to read, more emails to answer, more blogs to write or read, more classes to take and teach, more work for the sermons. Anybody have your sermon done for Sunday? I don't have my sermon done for Sunday. I was able to get the bulletin out. I was able to get the outline at least done for the bulletin, but I, you know, it's 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 not it's not ready to go yet as well. Which means your family tends to get less and less and less. So how many times have you come home late knowing that while you're trying to save your church, your wife has been left alone trying to save your kids? So, can we really be effective pastors and good husbands and dads? Is it possible? Do we really have to choose between the church and our family. And brothers, I want to say to you, and I'm, I'm grateful for uh, two sisters here as well. Um, it does not have to be an either or. Okay? You, elders, pastors can be effective leaders in their home and church. And the reason you can lead both your church and your family is because that's what the text says. First Timothy chapter 3. One of the basic requirements of an elder is that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Paul would never write that to Timothy if it wasn't possible. How? How do we do that, though? And uh, again, this goes back to one of the things that Dr. Dorn was saying toward the end of the message. Uh, Brothers, it's through the gospel. I mean, seriously, the gospel protects you from taking yourself too seriously while it exposes the idols of your own heart. So, this address is really just, just, it's just sharing some of the things that uh, I have learned and experienced in, in, in family life through the years. And it begins with, don't take yourself too seriously. Because the gospel reminds me, I am a sinner. I am prone to self-righteousness. I am prone to self-centeredness. And because just because I'm a pastor does not mean that I do not have to confess sin to my family. When I have blown it, and there have been so many times in my family when I have blown it. In fact, being the leader in my home in that regard means I take the lead in confessing my sin. I take the lead in saying, okay, when sin is exposed, all right, what are we supposed to do with it? I want to set the pattern for that, okay? Your kids know you are human. They see your underwear in the laundry. They smell your breath in the morning. 
They've, they've watched you try to fix that faucet and replace that water heater and drop your cell phone in the toilet. You are not a perfect parent. You're going to overreact. You're going to overpromise. You're going to forget. You're going to fail. You are a sinner. And on many occasions, I've had to go into my kid's bedroom. I've had to ask them for forgiveness for being a jerk. And they forgave me. It's, it is amazing how much grace my children have had. Some of my most humble moments in life have been sitting on my kid's bed while being patted on, them, patted on the back and hearing them say, It's okay, Dad. I sin too. <laughs> so what I'm saying, brothers, is that respect is best earned through relationships that are built on love rather than rules that can only make demands or only inspire fear. (coughs) Do you want your kids to fear you? Or do you want them to love you? I mean, there have been moments in which I wouldn't mind a little fear, (laughs) okay? But ultimately, it's, no, I want them to love me. So don't take yourself too seriously. Second thing along that line, Christ is a better Savior than my image. I'm tempted to believe that if I'm a perfect pastor, then others will think well of me. And I desire that. That's a, that's a nice word for worship. I worship that. I worship. I'm tempted to make an idol out of the respect of others. So, in order to be a perfect pastor, I need to have perfect children. Therefore, I need to get my children to cooperate with my desires to be respected. Thankfully, neither God nor my children went along with my desires. So, when my son was about four... We went to the funeral home to visit the family um, of a rather influential lady, uh, uh, the family of an influential lady in the church who had died. And uh, this is in the, the early days in which when I came to the, to the church, there was, there was like one family that, it was like the one ring that ruled them all. It was, it was the one family. It was just like, whatever you do, you just don't mess with that family. Well, it was like the, the matriarch had died. And um, so we go into the, the funeral home and standing there by the casket and the daughter comes over and she liked my son. She, she actually taught him in one of the preschool classes and, and uh, she, she's bending down and she's giving him a hug and he's looking in the casket and he looks at her and he goes, I know why your mom died. And I'm, I'm over here and I'm, I'm, I'm hearing this. I can't run over there fast enough. And I'm thinking... What on earth is going to happen? And you know, your life flashes before your eyes. And she's like, oh, Bobby, you know what? what, what? He goes, I know why your mom died. And uh, she goes, what, what, what is that? He goes, she ate too much. <laughs> I updated my resume that evening. <laughs> 
believing I would be needing that shortly. I mean, there were so many situations with my children when I was forced to consider if I was more concerned about my children and the gospel or how their failures would, would affect me. And so again, the gospel's clear. We sang it. Christ alone is my hope, not my children. So if I expect perfect behavior from them, I'm demanding from them what only Christ can provide. And that expectation, it will crush them. So they had to have the freedom to fail so they too could experience God's grace. So, along the way, my church family saw our, our warts and it saw our imperfections. They didn't have a perfect pastor. My children didn't have a perfect dad. But that's okay. We have a perfect Savior. So, with those two things in mind, here are some more specific matters that have helped me navigate the leadership of my home while leading the church. So I've made this subpoint B just things to consider, okay? And I've had to learn and relearn these things. One is you can't save everyone. Actually, you can't save anyone, right? Okay, only Jesus can. But we think, oh man, you know, if I was a really good pastor, then everybody who visited would stay. Every member who joined would never leave. And so it's tempting to tell a a visitor, um, or it's tempting to listen to a visitor tell you how terrible that other church is. Because, and they seem so sincere and hurt. And so now, what are you tempted to do? You are tempted to rush in and I'm going to show them what a real church is. I'm going to show them what a, what a real pastor should be like. I'm going to impress them with my sacrifice, my availability, my attention to their needs. Because now they're vulnerable and in their eyes, I can be a hero. I can restore their faith. I can rescue them. Really? Now, obviously, there are plenty of people who truly need care. But there are some people who do not actually deal with their issues. They just want attention from you. And they don't care if you sacrifice your children for them. They, they, they will take all that you offer and demand for more. And when they don't get it, they're going to walk out of your life but your kids are still there. One summer, this this is embarrassing, one summer while on vacation in Florida, a church member called and asked if I would do the funeral of his aunt because he knew I was in Florida and she had died in Florida three and a half hours away. My, my wife was stunned. He had 
the audacity to call you and ask you to do, and he was a, a newer guy in the church, and I'm ashamed to admit that I wanted him to think well of me. I agreed to do it. I meant I'm on vacation in Florida. I had to go out and buy a suit and shoes and a tie and leave my family and drive across the state all to make a good impression. And a few years later, he left the church when he didn't get to sing enough solos. Remember, if Jesus, if Jesus is not good enough for some people, what, 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 makes, what makes us think we will be? So, so related to this reality that you cannot save everyone, maybe you cannot save anyone, is only God is omnipresent. We're not. You, you simply cannot be in two places at the same time. So it's tempting to break a promise to your family because after all, they will understand. They, they, they will understand something has come up. Well, the truth is, you do that over and over, they will understand. They will understand that others matter significantly more than they do. Secondly, your family is, is part of your church family. Or, by God's grace, will be. Your family is part of your church family, or by God's grace, will be. So, people will sometimes ask, what's more important, your family or the church? Now, Kathy and I attempted to really guard ourselves from thinking of our family as being separate from the church. So we really thought, okay, how can we do some things together as a family that allow us to merge the two? Um, I would, I would take my my kids with me uh, whenever I could on home visits or hospital visits, whenever that was fitting. One evening, um, they were with me, uh, and they, as little kids, I, I asked. We were visiting a lady in the church who was dying of cancer in her home, and uh, she had been a teacher. Uh, for kids in the church, they sang to her. And her husband, for the next 20 years, talked about that over and over. He never forgot that. And I discovered that while my children may, may have to share me with, with many people, they also get to share in many things as well. They get to see the reality of death more than a lot of others. They, they get to see how a church family serves one another. They get to meet missionaries. They get to meet other pastors. They get to unlock the doors, turn off lights, fill the baptismal, fold the bulletins, make copies. They, they get to see things that others may take for granted, which helps give them a greater sense of ownership as a member. So if your children have professed faith in Christ and have become members of the church, they're literally part of your church. But if they're not members yet, you are preparing them, you trust, by God's grace, that they will become members of the church. And in both cases, you're seeking to instill within them a love for the church. My youngest, 
from like the age of six, no lie, loved members' meetings. Loved them. She loves quarterly reports. She goes over. And of course, you know, they always knew who was going to say what in members' meetings. You know, you know they, they, could, they, they could predict that. All right? Um, but where did that come from? And to this day, she, wherever she's at, she's a member of a church, and she's just all in on those aspects of it. Yet at the same time, our kids are in the spotlight to some degree. You cannot prevent that. So when you became a pastor or elder or leader or becoming one, you're being watched. And that is a big part of the ministry. They're watching your life, your family, part of that qualification. But you also get to help the congregation to try to treat them as regular members. So, so I attempted to minimize the spotlight on my children by not using my family stories in sermons once, once they got a little older. And by ensuring they had to play by the same rules as everyone else. One, one Memorial Day, um, historically, the youth group in our church goes to Cedar Point on Memorial Day. And the youth pastor had a policy, and I loved it. It was, we leave at, I don't know, 6 in the morning, whatever it was. And we're not leaving at 6.01, we're leaving at 6. And you're not there, it doesn't matter, we're leaving. And um, my one daughter was not ready on time. And um, the youth pastor did not wait on her. And uh, he left. And guess what she learned? <laughs> she is just like everybody else. It didn't, it didn't matter. And uh, now, what I did, you know, he, I, I, he's, he, he, he and I were on the phone together, and I said, is there any, I'm going to drive her to Cedar Point if I have to, you know, to help her out here. She's going to pay me back later. But, uh, but he said, you know, we had set this up where he was going to pull off into a rest area, and there were several buses, so that I would just kind of slide in and drop her off, and well, kids would never know, you know, so it all worked out, and, um, and she has been grateful for that eternally ever since. But the point that she learned, and it was consistent, is that just because you're my kid, you're one of the kids, you're, you're, because you're one of the members, you're, you're, you're part of the team. But a little word of caution here is that um, you know, s- some people in the church, they will hurt you. Some of you, you have very fresh um, pain for that. And it may be tempting to feel sorry for yourself and gossip in front of your children. And there will be times when you feel taken advantage of, you're tempted to play the victim card with your family. And I would just encourage you to guard them from that. Because in spite of the difficult days, and there are difficult days, 
but it is really a privilege to carry water for the church. It's a privilege to wash her feet and let your children know it is a privilege to serve the church because this will be, by God's grace, their family as well. So I attempted to instill within them a love for the church. I never wanted them to view the church in an adversarial way. Um, I would take them at night, uh, sometimes to the building, because I had a key to the building in order to play Nerf gun wars or wheelchair races, uh, fly paper airplanes. Uh, there is an M&M machine in my office. And uh, I mean, I wanted them to just look forward to uh, whatever I could, even for little kids. And then as they grew up, and now it's crazy. It's my grandkids, you know. They know where the M&M machine is. I'm successful. Um, third, third thing that has really been helpful for me to think of is that your church may be able to get another pastor, but your kids cannot get another dad. There are times when we have to choose between an important event for our kids and an event for our church. And when facing those decisions, I, um, I've often asked, is this a church event that someone else can cover? And I've also asked, is this event something that my child really needs for me to be at? I mean, if there's 24 games in the soccer season, am I a terrible dad if I only make 23? I don't think so. All right? Not Every event in my kid's life is a really big deal. So if I knew that the event was really important to them, I did everything I could to be there. Number four, little things really do matter. Every night when I would say goodnight to my children, I would usually pray with them. And then my last words to them were, I love you. I will always love you. There is nothing that you can do that will ever make me stop loving you. Now, there were times in which I would say, <laughs> but don't push it. <laughs> but year after year, I would say that to them. And of course, they would get to the point where I would start in. I love you. I will always love you. Yeah, I know, Dad. There's nothing we can do to ever make you stop loving you. And when they would do that, I was like, but don't you ever forget that. All right? I wanted them to know that what I attempted to do imperfectly was done for them perfectly by God through Christ. I wanted just my attempt at being a permanent source of love, you know, would be a, a taste of them of Jesus. I wanted them to know that their acceptance, their security was not rooted in their grades or awards or achievements or success as the world defined it. They, they heard me say that before solos, before piano competitions, before spelling bees and basketball and soccer games and final exams and college entrance exams, plus every night that I was home. So... One day, I was at a, a track meet for my youngest daughter, and I'm one of those embarrassing dads. My job is to just mortify my kids in front of their friends. And uh, my, my daughter is running, and I'm screaming my head off for her when my other daughter called from college, and she was in great distress. 
She was facing a test of monumental importance that would determine the success or failure of her entire college degree program, and she felt like she couldn't handle the pressure. She was cracking under the pressure. Four years of her life was resting all on this. And so I remember I'm on the phone, I'm talking to her while my other daughter is running, and it was just like, ah, oh, you know, two things coming together at the same time. But I reminded my daughter on the phone, you're not sufficient for this. You're not. But your confidence and your security, it ultimately rests in Christ. I I was 11 hours away from her. I couldn't get to her in that moment. But as my youngest was crossing the finish line, which turned out to be a, a, a personal best, I remember saying to my other daughter on the phone, remember, I love you. I will always love you. There is nothing that you can do to ever make me stop loving you. And she knew that was exactly what I was going to say. And that's why she called. Those little things. They really do matter. And if you can figure out some of those kinds of things to just, you know, instill within your kids, I, I think they're almost like the stones that, you know, Joshua had the nation of Israel put by the Jordan, just those things that you go back to, and they become just anchors in, in the souls of our kids. Uh, third thing, it's worth it. Let her see, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's a long haul. It's worth it. When I became the pastor where I'm at, our son was two. Kathy was expecting our second. Third was several years away. Now our kids are grown. They're gone. They're gone from the house. Um, They have kids of their own. We used to be that cute young pastor and his family, but now we're the seasoned warriors. Any time we get with our kids now, it's, it's a sweet joy. It's not that common. But there's something that's even more delightful. Almost every week, my son calls me to review his sermon prep with me. He, he doesn't need my input. He's a very capable preacher. But I get to share in his life. My, my daughter, who was who was bored in members' meetings, not the youngest one, the other one, she ended up being part of a church plant. And she was tapped to serve on the finance team. And I thought, oh, that's funny. The one who was bored by all this stuff now has to do a deep dive. And so all of a sudden, all that stuff she could care less about, polity, practices, procedures, accountability structures, all of a sudden it became daily conversations for a while. And and my youngest, being in the military, she's just become a member of a church wherever she goes, Oklahoma, North Carolina, Arizona, and in January, Alaska for three years. So in seeking... To love my congregation, there's a sense in which I have loved my family because my congregation has loved and continues to love my family. 
So I'm a member of my church. My congregation helped me and Kathy raise our kids. And to this day, by God's grace, they love the church and the church loves them. And it's, it's a sweet thing. And honestly, I consider that, of all the things in life, about more valuable than anything else. One of the things that I did um, with my kids, just as a, I, I tried to do it on a regular basis, this might be a, a thing that would serve you as well. Um, I learned this, it's called Stop, Start, More, Less. Stop, start, more or less. I would, I would sit down with each of them on a regular basis and say, is there anything that I do that you just wish I would stop? And I would tell them, it doesn't mean I'm going to stop it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but I just want to know, you know, what you're thinking. Is there anything that, you know, is there anything that I do that just absolutely drives you out of your mind? I, I, I just at least want to be aware of that. Um, is there anything that I don't do that you wish I would start? Is there anything that I do that you wish I would do more of? Or is there anything that I do that you wish I would do less of? Stop, start, more or less. That's a good thing to do with um, people that you serve with. You have fellow staff members and other things as well. It's been, it was particularly fruitful in, in my uh, just relationships with my kids to, for them to have the freedom to always um, be able to be just you know, honest with me and, and, and share. I think that served well. All right, so that was 45 minutes on parenting. I got 15 minutes on marriage. Okay, so it's kind of... All right, this point number two. A few years ago, I wrote an article uh, entitled, Is She Up for This? Um, it's on uh, ninemarks.org. You, you might find it useful. Uh, my wife has been an incredible part of the church and therefore uh, the ministry. And it's because... She loves Jesus, she loves people, and she loves me. But ministry is hard on marriages, often hard on marriages. Um, but again, I'm convinced that the part of the Spirit's genius, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, in focusing on the home, as part of our qualifications is because, as the Puritans used to say, the home is the little church. Because how we function in marriage is probably how we function in the church. So the kind of husband I am is probably the kind of pastor I am. So if I resist the sanctifying effects of my wife, I will likely resist the sanctifying effects of Christ's wife, the church. If I think that I am the unquestionable and unanswerable leader of my home... I will likely view the church in the same way. Don't, don't, don't challenge me. If everyone would just do as I say, everything would be better. If, however, I view my wife as belonging to Christ, then I will understand Ephesians 5.28 a little better. In the same way. In the same way that the love of Christ sanctifies His bride so that her wrinkles and spots are gone. My love for my wife is to be so powerful that it helps sanctify her. And the temptation I think that we have to, that we have to identify is that we tend to be way more focused on our Marriage being for our ministry 
rather than being focused on the ministry of our marriage. So there's no doubt that our marriage, if it is healthy, is a huge benefit to our ministry. But our marriage is not a means to an end. Our marriage is itself ministry. So in in Ephesians, Paul tells Paul, or in Ephesians, Paul tells us, tells the believers at Ephesus to see marriage and the church to be so complementary that he has to tell us that he's thinking of the church when it appears he's thinking of marriage. Verse 32. So, this workshop is not a seminar, it's, it's a workshop. So we don't have the opportunity to, to go real deep, but if I can just point you in a good direction and give you some things to work on um, that might be helpful for you, and our time will be well spent. I've learned many of these things the more difficult way, and I'm still trying to learn them. I didn't always see the connection between what kind of a husband I am and what kind of a pastor that I am. Gratefully, my wife did, and she was a wonderful instrument in the Lord's hands for my sanctification for the benefit of the church. It was our habit to have a nice dinner yearly for our wedding anniversary and to use that occasion to evaluate our relationship, to compare notes on our children, to make sure that what you're seeing is what I'm seeing. Are we on the same page parentally? What are the things we need to work on, things we need to encourage, you know, um, that kind of stuff. And through our years, through, through the years, our kids occupied more of those conversations and our attention than our actual marriage did. But it didn't mean that we were in trouble. We weren't. But what I did not know is that my wife was increasingly lonely in our marriage. She is a very capable person. She never wanted to be a bother. She did a lot without complaining. I... Um, took this as being a good way for life to be. She's not a needy person. I took that for granted. She had her lane. I had my lane. She was focused. I was focused. She could get a lot done. I could get a lot done. Challenges came to each of us, and we met them together if needed, but often in her own way. That seemed to be working, seemed to be fine with me. Thank God. It wasn't fine with her. It was our 22nd wedding anniversary, 2005. I really didn't do much to prepare for the conversation that night. I was pretty sure that when I said, hey, how do you think we're doing? I was going to get some pretty high marks. I mean, we'd been through some tough things, and it looked like we'd kind of come out the other end. We had recently moved into... A new building, which was a major project. My, my father had died, and uh, I had moved him and my mom uh, up to uh, be with us so that I could care for him in his two-year battle with cancer. Um, a staff member had disqualified himself morally. I had to assume his responsibilities, and in spite of it all, you know, church seemed to be holding its own. Our oldest was in his first year of college. We just, I just think, okay, you know. Man, we just seemed to be on track. So, got to the end of the dessert portion of our dinner, and I just kind of casually said, so, how do you think we're doing? My 
I'm not even sure I needed to ask the question because I pretty much knew what the answer was. I was not prepared for what came next. Because what came next was nothing. It was a long pause. And the longer the pause, you know, the weightier the response. You know? And then Kathy said, I'm dying. And she didn't mean physically, but personally. And she explained by sharing something that she had actually been preparing for several years. She had worked on this talk to me. She was waiting for the right time. And she believed before the Lord that that night was the right time. And she began to help me see a clearer picture of our marriage by helping me see a clearer picture of me, which eventually helped me to have a clearer picture of the ministry. And her points were this. I don't need her because I think and live as if I don't need anyone. And she illustrated that. And I had to sit there and go, guilty. Second thing, being capable and efficient is not the goal. People are. Mm. Guilty. Number three, I do not share things of the heart with her. I don't ask for her input. I don't want to appear needy. I don't ask her to do things. And she is left out. Just like everybody else. She talked a long time that night. And I had enough sense to just listen without attempting to defend myself. And the the more that she talked the more I realized I had been living in an alternate universe. I was deceived. I needed somebody to help me see my sin correctly and feel it deeply. And the Lord was using her. I was blind to my own idols. And over the next several months... I really sought to take what she said and tried to take it to heart. She was right. I had this idol of self-reliance that I attempted to polish. And idolatry has its own doctrines. And, And this theology of my idolatry went like this. No one likes a needy person. Therefore, no one wants a needy pastor. Handle things on your own. Find a solution. Don't ask for help. A competent pastor will have a competent church. A competent church will be a rock for people. But, you know, 
needy people, they just may not fit in. Needy people may, may need to find somewhere else. This is, this is a competent church. And don't let people get too close. And over time, I began to see the true state of my ministry because the Lord allowed me to see the true state of my marriage. The church, it was capable, but it wasn't really close and affectionate and affirming and encouraging. Encouraging? Encur- who? Encur- that, that's for... That's for weak people. Why, why, why do I need to encourage people? I mean, no one calls me in the morning and tells me to get out of bed. Why should I pat people on the back when they're just doing what they should be doing? My thinking. And as a church, we weren't really close to other churches. I mean, who needs other churches? And as a pastor, I at that time was not really all that close to other pastors. Why do I need other pastors? As a result, right belief, right practices, right living, right processes, they were all emphasized. But what was missing was deep relationships. And I began to realize, God in His grace, I was preaching through 1 Corinthians. Oh, my word. It was... was, It was a major shift in my whole thinking. I began to see the church look just like me, and it was not pretty. In fact, in many ways, there was a practical denial of some aspects of the gospel. Because after all, only needy people need the gospel. Now, I knew that. And I knew of my need for Christ. I just didn't see it as broadly as I needed to. So even in my preaching, I, I, I loved to work through the tough stuff. I mean, if you don't want the meat of the word, there are plenty of other places that would give you that cotton candy, but here we're serious, you know. But there wasn't that much application. That was another humbling insight. And so my point is, by, by helping me be a better husband. My wife helped me become a better pastor. And in, in our case, she took a big risk and had to confront me. And since then, I've tried to initiate the conversation so that she didn't feel like Esther wondering what the response would be when she approached me, Okay. All right? I, I try to ask those questions so that there's a, a freedom to share her insights and that I want to hear them even though they may be difficult to hear. I had a difficult meeting Tuesday evening. I came home, sat down on the couch, and she says, do you want to talk to me about it? I said, 
No, <laughs> I, I don't want to talk to you about it. I need to talk to you about it, but I don't want to talk to you about it. But I know I need to. And she goes, well, does the fact that I am your wife and I'm asking you about it, does that have any bearing on that? And I said, yes, of course. So I am going to talk to you about it, but I was just giving you one on this answer. I don't really feel like talking to you about it. But I do believe, and I did talk to her about it, I believe that our church is way better because her pastor is more human because his wife wouldn't settle. And she knew this was not ultimately about her. This was ultimately about the church. And she was right. And so I think maybe in your notes there's some questions. Here's some questions I think are helpful. For me, perhaps for you to ask your wife, what, what are the strengths of our marriage? Man, celebrate those. Thank God for those. How do the strengths of our marriage display themselves in the ministry? And then the other side of that, what are the weaknesses of our marriage? How do the weaknesses of our marriage display themselves in our marriage? And is there anything that you think I need to hear that you or others are afraid to tell me? We're going out for our anniversary. (laughs) It's tomorrow. Um, her parents are taking us out to eat so we won't be having that conversation (laughs) until after we get home and then we will and by God's grace he'll use that in my life and, and possibly in hers that our marriage will be a little sweeter even and his church will look a little bit more like Jesus. Um, may, may the Lord use these things to help his bride ultimately um, and maybe help your bride along the way. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you that you are sanctifying your church and that one day we will all stand shoulder to shoulder and just be amazed at what you have done in our lives for your grace and glory. I pray that uh, you'll use maybe one or two little things from this time. Encourage my brothers and sisters here and uh, help our homes, our families, our kids, uh, that together we make much of you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.